Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Today, we are joined by Dr. Shazad Mustafa, a board-certified allergist in the Division of Allergy and Immunology at Rochester Regional Health System and Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine and Clerkship Director in Allergy and Clinical Immunology at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry in Rochester, New York. Dr. Mustafa also serves as FACS Medical Advisory Board Chair. Thank you for joining us for another edition of FACS Roundtable Podcast. Today, we're going to bust a few myths and bring you the facts. Dr. Mustafa, does someone need to be experiencing hives to have anaphylaxis? Is this a myth or a fact? That is a myth. So although 80% of allergic reactions do have skin manifestations, itching, rash, hives typically, it is not necessary to be having hives to have a significant allergic reaction. And in fact, some of the most severe allergic reactions happen in the absence of hives. So although hives are common, um, skin symptoms are common in about 80% of individuals, especially in the community, in the outpatient world, you can have an allergic reaction without having hives that presents as just coughing, difficulty breathing, wheezing, sometimes abdominal symptoms, belly pain, cramping, vomiting. Kids, little young kids will often vomit immediately after eating a food allergen, being exposed to a food allergen. So although it's common to have hives, it is not necessary. So I would say that is a myth. Excellent. Thank you so much for busting that myth. Okay, so the next myth up, can cross-contact cause anaphylaxis? Myth or fact? Cross-contact can cause anaphylaxis, albeit I think the risk is relatively low. So cross-contact is coming in contact with a food uh, allergen while you're consuming another food, right? So we worry about this with precautionary labels, particularly eating out. And although that can, a small amount of a food allergen can absolutely cause a severe life-threatening reaction or anaphylaxis, I think the risk is relatively low. In the setting of precautionary labeling, which is a, a very, you know, stressful and imperfect situation for food allergy individuals and families, including my own, there's become more and more debate in the allergy community of do these foods with precautionary labeling need to be avoided carte blanche by all individuals with a food allergy, or can you pick and choose, or do they have not a whole lot of meaning at all? And right now, I think it's most important to not put a blanket statement on how to approach precautionary labeling. I think what type of food it is matters, whether it's a granola bar or, you know, apple juice, I think it's different. So at this point, I would encourage our families to have a discussion with your allergist about how they should potentially approach foods with precautionary labeling. I have some families that consume all foods with precautionary labeling. I have some families who avoid all foods with precautionary labeling and others who pick and choose. I personally don't know of any data that says if you consume precautionary labeled foods, you have a higher risk of anaphylaxis. I don't know of that. I think this is a moving target. This has changed in the last few years. And I think it's worth a conversation with your allergist and the pros and cons about consuming foods with precautionary labeling. 
which is obviously an imperfect science. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, so next myth to be busted is if you smell your allergen, can you have an allergic reaction from that? Yeah, so the question of smelling allergen and having an allergic reaction or an airborne allergic reaction is highly unlikely, but not impossible. And I think the food matters here. Um, the setting it comes up most is uh, airborne reactions to peanut. Um, and that is highly, highly unlikely, if not impossible. So the key about allergens is you're allergic to the protein in whatever you're allergic to, whether it's a food or whether it's an environmental allergen, ragweed the protein or the protein in amoxicillin. And peanut protein, for example, is fairly heavy. It's about 20 kilodaltons and it doesn't aerosolize very well. So individuals with peanut allergy can absolutely smell peanut products from across the room um, and often have a very visceral response to stay the heck away, right? Um, it's kind of a self-protection means. But the likelihood of having a systemic reaction from being around peanut is as close to zero as I can say without saying zero. So I actually want to reassure individuals with peanut allergy that it is probably safe to be around. It is safe to be around individuals consuming peanut products. This comes up obviously in school. I'm um, in sitting next to a friend who's eating a peanut butter and jelly. If the peanut allergic child is mature enough to know not to grab their friend's sandwich or eat it, there is no reason for them to not be able to sit next to it. This comes up in traveling. And airplanes and is exceedingly safe for food allergic individuals and peanut allergic individuals to travel in airplanes. I encourage all my families to travel if they wish to do so. So airborne reaction to peanut in most foods is extraordinarily unlikely, if not, I, I hesitate to say impossible, but close to impossible. The one food group where that may be a little different is seafood, where the protein aerosolizes very well. So again, if you're allergic to shellfish, I think sitting next to someone eating a shrimp cocktail poses close to zero risk. But if you're at a clam bake or there's a lot of steam in the air, there have been reports of systemic reactions or respiratory symptoms to seafood in the air. So I think seafood poses more risk than peanut and other food groups. Uh, but this is something that comes up all the time. Parents have tremendous anxiety about it, especially with school lunches, things like that. So I think it's important to counsel individuals on the science we know. There are studies on this, so we should base our counseling on the studies on the science. Thank you. Okay, next myth. Is it not safe for a person with a dairy allergy to go into a Starbucks? Is that a myth or a fact? I think it is a myth. I think individuals with food allergy absolutely can go to public places, restaurants, public venues, fairs, school setting. Airborne reaction, again, is extraordinarily rare. I mean, essentially, you have to consume most foods to have a reaction. Now, certainly, if you're going to restaurants, a Starbucks, you and ordering food, consuming food, you want to, of course, notify um, the place of your food allergen. You always want to carry an epinephrine auto-injector in the chance of an accidental ingestion. Um, but the sad thing about food allergies is they've increased in prevalence. The flip side of that is folks have become more knowledgeable about it. Restaurants, places like Starbucks uh, are much more used to handling it. Um, so I think it is absolutely safe for anyone with a food allergy to go to Starbucks or a restaurant, as long as you are informing the folks there about the food allergen and as long as they're comfortable dealing with it. 
this is just me personally, and I'm just sharing my own personal experience. My seven-year-old son has is allergic to peanuts along with cashews and pistachios. We certainly do eat out at restaurants. I certainly take him to Starbucks at Starbucks. All I say is that he is allergic to peanuts and certain tree nuts. They always use a fresh um, blender for his whatever his drink of choice is, and he's done very well. But I absolutely encourage individuals um, that you want to do the things you want to do, quality of life, maintain your quality of life while being safe and prudent. So go do the things you want to do, do it in a safe way. Everyone needs to be aware of your food allergen, carry epinephrine in the, you know, in the unlikely uh, circumstance of an accidental ingestion. But, you know, maintaining quality of life is so important. Can kissing cause an allergic reaction? Is this a myth or a fact? So technically, kiss, uh, if someone consumes a food allergen and is kissing so, um, someone shortly thereafter, it can cause an allergic reaction. Again, albeit the risk is very low. One of my, one of my um, things that I say all the time is risk is not binary. There's very few things that are zero risk, and then there's very few things that are just a lot of risk. There's a spectrum of risk. So although there is some risk there, the risk is very low. And with a few simple steps, um, there is close to zero risk of causing an allergic reaction through kissing. Um, increased time, more than a few minutes time elapsed really decreases that risk. Certainly brushing teeth after consuming a food allergen will decrease that risk. So that risk is there. There are actually studies on peanut allergen um, being tr transferred through kissing. Um, but again, the risk is relatively low and can be mitigated with some very small, simple steps of a little bit of time and certainly things like brushing teeth. And I don't think our knowledge on other food allergens is as good as peanut in that setting. Um, this, the papers I know of are about the setting of peanut. So they're small risk, easy to mitigate with some simple common sense measures. Can someone who's pregnant pass on an allergy to their unborn child by eating an allergen? Is that a myth or fact? That's a great question. And as of today, to the best of our knowledge, that is a myth. As of today, we do not have a great understanding of the risk of a child's allergy based on maternal diet while pregnant or breastfeeding. So there are, again, there's studies on this um, and there's guidelines. As of today, I mean, I'm, I'm a guy, so I can't speak to this, but from what I hear, being pregnant is hard. Um, and we don't want to make it unnecessarily harder. And as of today, there is no proof that excluding highly allergenic foods from a pregnant woman's diet affects the likelihood of a, their child developing food allergy. And that, you know, peanuts, milk, eggs, these are the common food allergens. So mothers should be consuming an unrestricted diet of their choice when they're pregnant and likely when they're breastfeeding as well. Now, we're certainly working very hard to figure out why food allergies have increased um, and what roles are, what factors are contributing to that. And that's going to continue to be looked at. But we only know what we know today. And as of today, mothers should not be restricting their diet because they think it's going to help their child in the setting of food allergy. We don't think um, that is supported by science today. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Next question here. Should teenagers be carrying one epinephrine auto-injector or two? Yeah, so ideally any food allergic individual should carry two epinephrine auto-injectors. And the reasoning behind that is there's a certain percentage of severe allergic reactions that'll require treatment with more than one epinephrine auto-injector. 
So in an ideal world, you should carry two. Um, with that being said, I do understand the practicalities of the world. And epinephrine autoinjectors can be expensive. Um, and there's a lot of out-of-pocket costs. So in, in the setting where you know it's not logistically feasible to carry two, a family can only afford a set of two, and then they have to split them up in different settings, um, certainly carrying one is better than none. But ideally, you want to have two because a certain percentage of allergic reactions, depending on a study, that number varies from 15% to 20% to 30%. A certain percentage will require more than one dose. Um, so it's nice to have that on you. Of course, when you use an epinephrine autoinjector, you are supposed to seek additional medical care for that same reason. You may need another dose. Um, so ideally, the answer to your question is two. If it's logistically impossible, for various reasons, most commonly what I hear is financial considerations and costs. One is certainly better than none. All right. Last myth for you. If you have one child in a family with food allergies, what are the odds of the second child having food allergies? That's a great question. So the risk of food allergy in America is about three to 6%. And if you have a first degree relative with food allergy, mom, dad, siblings, the risk of the individual goes up slightly, but not a huge amount. Okay. So as of today, if you have a child with food allergies and then you have a new baby, there's actually no reason to delay the introduction of highly allergenic foods into the, the baby's diet. That's the guideline because odds are on your side. But with that being said, I take care of a lot of families when they have an older sibling who's had a severe food allergy or food reaction to peanut or milk or egg. They're understandably nervous to introduce that food to um, their younger child. So I would encourage a conversation with an allergist and you know what we call shared decision-making. Doing what works for that family to try to introduce highly allergenic foods and all foods and brought in the diet as soon as possible. Delaying the introduction, it doesn't help anyone. We kind of know that, especially with peanuts and eggs. Um, so, you know, some folks just sitting down and talking to them will be enough reinsurance where they'll be able to do that. Some folks may really, really benefit from some limited, limited testing. Um, I think that's appropriate if that helps facilitate the introduction of foods in the family's diet. Um, testing is fraught with limitations and food allergy. We know that there's a high rate of false positives. Sometimes we just encourage the individual to introduce the food to the baby in our office for the first time with a little bit of reassurance that we're around. So I really think having an older sibling with a food allergy increases the risk of food allergy a little bit, not a huge amount. And we really, really want to get these foods into the child's diet. So it's a whole process of shared decision-making and working with the individual family to make that happen. It is a real risk. It's a small risk, but um, you know, my number three has food allergies. If I were to have a fourth kid, which I better not, um, you know, I would have some um, hesitancy to do that too. So I get it. So you just work with the families, individuals, and do what's right for them in that scenario. But again, important, don't just delay the introduction of foods. That's not helpful. We know that. Very good. Thank you so much. That was a really nice explanation. Now, are there any myths that really bother you that you just want to bust today? I mean, the biggest myth in food allergy, I, I, the biggest problem, I think, unfortunately, uh, and this bothers me, and this is how our practice is based, is remains the overdiagnosis of food allergy. Overdiagnosis of food allergy remains a major problem in the U.S. People certainly think they're allergic to foods that they may not be. It is important to iron out the difference between an allergy versus an intolerance or a sensitivity. 
because they have different ramifications and considerations. But even by doctors, and sometimes even allergists, food allergies are overdiagnosed. And that's because our testing is imperfect. Our testing shows the presence of antibodies. It doesn't show the presence of necessarily allergic reaction. So I encourage individuals, over-testing will certainly be problematic, but you need to uh, be seeing well-trained uh, docs who manage food allergies. False, uh, you know, positive test does not mean you're allergic. So I really, really encourage individuals when there's any question of food allergy, regardless of the test results, typically skin testing or IgE blood work, regardless of that, there is often utility of oral food challenges, which really is the end-all be-all in saying if someone is allergic to a food or not. And you know, really, really, really want to limit unnecessary avoidance of foods. And that can happen with overdiagnosis of food allergy. It can happen with carte blanche statements. People who are allergic to peanuts don't need to necessarily avoid tree nuts or avoid all tree nuts. You might be able to consume some regardless of the test results. So that's where you really want to consider food challenges. So anyone who's living with a food allergy, anyone who has a family member with a food allergy, be dogmatic, question your doc, question your allergist, question your primary care doctor and pediatrician about the how convinced they are if this is a true food allergy. And if there's any question, um, you should consider an oral food challenge. They are so beneficial in getting the diagnosis right and quite frankly, regardless of the outcome of an oral food challenge, there's studies that show people report increased quality of life. It's really, really helpful. So I think that's a big thing. It's basics, it's uh, food allergy 101, but you gotta get the diagnosis right before you do anything. And once you get the diagnosis right, counseling is so paramount uh, because that's really what drives people's uh, quality of life and impact on their day-to-day -day life. So. That's my spiel, get the diagnosis right and then spend time with an allergist um, discussing how to best manage that diagnosis of food allergy. Thank you again for your time today and helping us bust some of these myths and get the facts straight. Thank you again. We look forward to speaking to you in the future, Dr. Mustafa. Thank you so much for having me. Now that we've enjoyed some food allergy myth busting, I would like to direct listeners to a few free downloadable resources. Visit foodallergyawareness.org to find Facts, Signs, and Symptoms of Anaphylaxis Poster, the Allergy and Anaphylaxis Emergency Plan created by the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Preventing Cross-Contact and Accidental Environmental Exposure Poster, and Facts Navigating the Food Allergy Treatment Decision Process Handout. Thank you all for listening to Facts Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes and be sure to connect with us on social media. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.